Now, I get the privilege of reading to you the first 17 verses of the book of, um, dadgummit, I need these. Um, Now I get the privilege of reading to you from the book of Romans, beginning at verse 1, going through verse 17. You give attention as I read a portion of God's word that is uh, special to a lot of us. It reads like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, if you're a bit new to Grace Van, let me explain that we're in a multi-year series that's entitled Great Chapters. And my plan is to try to alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We just last week finished Ezekiel 36, which is an Old Testament passage, of course. And now we're coming to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Now, I I hope that you don't hear me by the title of this series implying that there are chapters in here that are not great. Um, They're all great in in my book. But uh, there are some chapters that contain subject matter that that is so essential that the Christian church get right that that are so essential that an individual Christian understand and be able to apply to his own soul. So that's the places that we're going. Gang, um, 
This is a series entitled Great Chapters, Not Famous Chapters. Ezekiel 36 was certainly not a famous chapter. But Romans 1 is. <laughs> I would suggest, arguably I guess, that the most famous chapter in all the Bible is Romans 1. And it's been made famous, it was made famous by a um, German monk, an Augustinian monk in the 16th century. His name, of course, was Martin Luther. And we'll talk about him more a bit later. But if you will look at what I just read you, the first 17 verses, I think it's fairly easy to see that one of the themes of Romans 1 is the gospel. I would suggest to you that one of the major themes of the entire book of Romans is the gospel. But you can see it, I think, pretty easily in Romans 1. It is mentioned five times. Did you notice it? It starts out in verse 1 by calling it the gospel of God. That is, the origin, the, the, uh, the author, the originator of the gospel is God the Father. And, and then he says in that same verse, with those same words, he says, I've been set apart for that gospel of God. That is, the defini definitional center of Paul's life was the gospel. I was set apart for that. Then you come down to verse 9, and he mentions this gospel of his son, that at the center of this thing called the gospel is his son, um, who, by the way, was introduced way up in verse 3 and 4. But at the center of this gospel for which I was set apart is a story about his son. Then you come over to verse 15. And he says, I can't wait to go to Rome. I can't wait to get over there with you guys, uh, the Christian church in Rome, because I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. In Paul's mind, even the converted needed to hear over and over again the message of the gospel. And then, of course, <laughs> you come to verse 16. A verse that I bet you've heard before, and I bet you've heard preached before. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. For it's the power of God unto salvation. That if there's ever going to be a salvation for you, it's going to be found in the message called the gospel. And I can promise you, ladies and gentlemen, that message uh, that it is the power to, of God to save, that message will always provoke uh, antagonism, offense, um, complaint, opposition. But Paul says this is the thing in which is found the power of God to save, the gospel. And then you come to verse 17. Now, folks, the word gospel is not found in verse 17. But if you look at it, you'll notice he says, for in it. What is the it? 
What is the antecedent of the indefinite pronoun it? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. For in it, the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith from, from faith to, to faith. Because the just shall live by faith. What he's telling you in verse 17 is that the gospel is summarized. The gospel is summarized in, in, these, in this language of verse 17. It, verse 17 is a, in, a, in essence, a, almost a summary of the gospel because it's an announcement about what God has done. It's an announcement about the things that God has provided for guilty people like us. It's not an announcement about how you might search for God. It's an announcement about what God has done to find us, not we find him. Guys, I, I think you know that the word for gospel, um, it's the Greek word euangelion, but that word means good news. You know that. Um, and I, it, it, it's, the gospel is not good advice. I love to say that. I love to say it because in the world today, you would think that the gospel is a piece of advice. It's advising us how that we might do certain things so that we could curry God's favor and we could get on his good side and ultimately he would uh, accept us when we die. It's, a, it's, 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 it's advising us how we should, uh, you know, do certain things that will make him happy and thus he'll say, oh, okay, you're better than the rest of those creeps, so why don't you just trickle right on in here? Folks, the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It is good news about the righteousness of God. And, and this message of the gospel goes on to supply that, that profound story that's at the center of it that has to do with Christ and him crucified. Forgiveness for sin. That, ladies and gentlemen, is good news, not good advice. God has accomplished this work of salvation. And oh, ladies and gentlemen, how different is the gospel of 21st century modern Western people. The gospel that they invent is a gospel that starts with men. And, and, and gang, that is not good news. Because if it starts with you, it's always going to tell you how it is that you might produce God's favor for you. And if that's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, all of us are always going to come up short. Which is what Martin Luther found out. And it is what made Romans 1 so famous.
Guys, in verse 17 of Romans 1, there are a few words, six words, six monosyllables. The just shall live by faith. And those six words made history with a vengeance. Through those six words, Martin Luther rediscovered a gospel that for centuries had been hidden under layers and layers of Ava Marias and Hail Marys and Paternosters and rosaries and, and ritual and church tradition. And when the truth of those six words broke into Martin Luther's heart, it was as if the windows of all of Europe had been suddenly thrown open and gospel light begin to flood in. Folks, I want to tell you this story about how that happened. And it is a fascinating story and, and multifaceted. And uh, if you've heard the story before, stay tuned because there's a part of it that I want to add this morning that I, I didn't know even until this week. Folks, in, um, in a city in Germany, Rudelstadt, Germany, there is a library. And in that library in Rudelstadt, Germany, there is a glass case. And in that glass case in the library in Rudelstadt, Germany is a manuscript. And that manuscript was written by a man by the name of Dr. Paul Luther, who was Martin Luther's youngest son. And in that manuscript, Paul Luther, the youngest son of Martin Luther, records for us a night that he had with his father around the fire. Um... I'm, perhaps the rest of the family was there, I don't know. But we, I, I know that Paul Luther was there. It's a night where Daddy, Martin Luther, told the story to his family about his visit to Rome in 1515. Martin Luther was a monk at a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany called the Black Cloister. Luther was a, was a turbulent, troubled, anxious, fearful, restless monk who would go to confession and would spend hours confessing his sin. The, um, the confessor and the head of the, um, the monastery there in Wittenberg was a man by the name of Johann von Stoppitz. And von Stoppitz would say that he would spend hours in the confessional with Luther. And so trying to help this young, troubled monk, um, von Stoppitz came up with the idea that he should send this monk to pay a visit to Rome where he could visit all the holy sites and take in all the relics that were there in Rome. 
And so in 1515, Martin Luther takes a trip to Rome in the hopes that his soul might be quieted. When he got to Rome, one of the first places that he wanted to visit was a place that was called the Scala Sancta. It's a Latin phrase which simply means the sacred stairs. They were the stairs that supposedly Jesus had, um, had walked up on his way to his audience with Pontius Pilate. And those stairs had been miraculously transported to Rome from Jerusalem. And by the way, I should tell you, those stairs are still in Rome. You can still visit them. They're in the Lateran Church on the outskirts uh, of, of, the, of the Vatican. I, I've heard that they're a replica today, which I certainly could understand. But um, um, Luther wanted to visit those stairs. And he wanted to visit them because the Pope had promised indulgences. Everybody knows what indulgences are, don't you? An indulgence was a, was a, it was a lessening of your stay in purgatory. And by the way, it wasn't your own stay, your own uh, stay in purgatory. It was for, it always had to be about somebody else. Um, a friend, a relative, a loved one. And so Luther wanted to visit those stairs because the Pope had promised nine years per step. Um, and by the way, you couldn't walk up them. You still can't, by the way. You, you have to go up them on your knees. And so there were 28 steps. And if my math is correct, that's 252 years off your stay in purgatory. Which, I mean, that's a quarter of a century, a quarter of a millennium. 252 years is nothing to sneeze at. And in fact, it produced a great deal of family solidarity and, and unity because I mean, if your brother was dying, you could say, uh, <laughs> don't worry, brother, I know you're dying, but when you die, I'm going to take a trip to Rome. And when I get there, I'm going to go up to Scala Sancta and that's going to take off 252 years of your stay in, in purgatory. And by the way, if you could get another friend to do that, you know, <laughs> that'd be uh, almost a, a half of a millennium that would be off of your staying in, in purgatory. So Martin Luther visited the Scala Sancta. And if you're ever in Rome, I hope you can get a spot on the, on the stairs because they are packed with people going up on their knees, believing the same promise of the Pope. Nine years per step, 28 steps, 252 years. Martin Luther was making his way up those steps. And as he did, there were some words that were originally found in the book of Habakkuk. But those words in Habakkuk were quoted three times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, in Galatians 3, and in Romans 1. And the words that continued to thunder in his consciousness were the words 
The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Those were important words. Quoted three times in the New Testament. What other Old Testament verse do you know of that's quoted three times in the New Testament? John 3.16 is not quoted three times in the New Testament. But those words were important because they give us a sum and substance of the whole gospel. Rome had taught Martin Luther and continues to teach its adherents, as well as other places teach this, that the just shall live by works. The just shall live by achievement or performance. The just shall live by sacraments. The just shall live by merit. The just shall live by fear. But on those steps, Martin Luther heard, the just shall live by faith. And when he got to the top of the stairs, he stood up and said, who knows whether this is true or not. That is, the nine years per step. He returned to Germany, disillusioned and disgusted with the sexual sin that he saw in the priesthood there in Rome. And some say that it was there on those stairs in 1515 where the Protestant Reformation was born. But others say no. No, it wasn't there. Um, it was later. It was later at the church door at Wittenberg, where on October the 31st of 1517, Luther nailed the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Um, others say that it was there at that church door where the Reformation was begun where he nailed those 95 theses challenging the Roman church to a debate. Now, folks, listen. Interestingly, in those 95 theses, there, are ve there is very little, if any, mention of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Most of the 95 theses, if not all of it, is dedicated to challenging Rome to a debate over indulgences and the excesses of Mother Rome. And some have suggested that the reason that the doctrine of justification by faith is not found in the 95 Theses was because Martin Luther was at that point in 1517 not a Christian himself. And that didn't come until 1519, four years after his visit to Rome, when Martin Luther was preparing to teach the book of Romans. And there in a tower at the monastery of the Black Cloister, in Wittenberg, Germany, there in that tower, he had a, a discovery. It is called the Tower Experience. You can Google it yourself. I have numerous times 
This week I found a picture of the, um, the, Wittenberg, uh, the Wittenberg Monastery, and there is a tower on the side. And supposedly in that tower, in 1519, Martin Luther discovered the biblical gospel. That discovery occurred, as I said, as he was studying Romans to teach it, but specifically in Romans 1.17. But this time, it was a different set of words. It was not the words, the just shall live by faith, but it was his study of and a correct understanding of the words, the righteousness of God. You see, folks, all of his life, Luther had sought to obey God so that God might approve of him and accept him on the basis of Martin Luther's merit. But Martin Luther knew that he had failed. But as he studied Romans 1.17, particularly the words that came after the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, the just shall live by faith. In that context, in those words after the phrase, the righteousness of God, it was a, that, that phrase that struck such fear in Martin Luther, struck my conscience like a thunderbolt in my heart. But in those following words, in the context of, of Romans 1.17, that, that Martin Luther was brought to understand that the righteousness of God was not talking about the righteousness that God demands. It was talking about the righteousness that God gives to all of those who believe the gospel because in it, the, righteous, the, the, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The sinner is saved not by doing, but by receiving the righteousness demanded by God comes from God. It was a righteousness that God provides to all of those who trust in Christ. The righteousness that God demands is righteousness that God provides. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is good news. I can never meet God's standards. But Jesus Christ did. And he met them for me. And then God the Father imputes the righteousness of Christ to me and to all who believe in and trust Christ savingly. The righteousness needed is a God-provided righteousness. And Martin Luther learned that 
in a tower in 1519. And about that experience, Martin Luther himself writes, I was born again and entered into paradise itself. So, when was Martin Luther saved? I don't know. Maybe it was on the stairs of the Scala Sancta in 1550 in Rome. Maybe it was at the church door at Wittenberg in 1517. Or maybe it was the tower at the monastery in Wittenberg in 1519. But that really doesn't matter, does it? But here's a question that does matter. When were you saved? Are you saved right now? Do you understand that we are saved by faith and not by works? Have you given up that self-salvation project and come to rest in Christ's finished work? Have you put your faith in Christ and Christ only? Okay, Dr. Young, tell me what you mean by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, there's all kinds of theological definitions of faith. But I, I would suggest that if you know what it means to have faith in a promise, then you know what it means to have faith in the gospel. If you know what is meant by faith in a medicine, then you know what is meant by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you know what is meant by faith in a doctor, or faith in a lawyer, or faith in a friend, you know what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Don't overparse that. But may I ask you again, have you given up that self-salvation project and put your whole trust and faith in Jesus Christ only. Because as Romans 1.17 says, the just shall live by faith. Our Father, would you make this very clear, very understandable to your people? Would you, um, would you allow those who have already received that Savior to rejoice in hearing that message all over again? To know that all of their strivings and their deadly doings can be put aside? 
that we can simply rest in the one whose work has satisfied all the demands of God and that that God is willing to provide that righteousness to all who believe. Oh, what good news it is. Might that news be at the very center of our whole spiritual being. Our Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met our Savior, who are still thinking that they are saved by merit, saved by performance, saved by sacraments, saved by by fear, would you stop that in them and bring them to that blessed rest of resting in Christ's person and work. Do that, O God, for your own glory's sake. Amen.